This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Danny Cheng, a consultant paediatric haematologist at Great Ormond Street, and he's going to be talking to me about leukaemia. We will cover the diagnosis, investigations and principles of management of childhood leukaemias, corresponding to the haematology section of the MRC-PCH curriculum. Thank you very much, Dr. Cheng, for coming on the show and talking to me today. Pleasure. Nice to meet you. Can I just start by asking what you would like people to get out of this podcast, what you think is important? I guess it's how it's recognized because obviously leukemia is it's not a very common diagnosis. And if you're not familiar with this, you know, it could be very easily misdiagnosed. Yeah, sure. Okay. So I guess starting with just an overall summary of leukemia, what are the kind of common types? I know you said it's not very common, but what are the more common types of leukemia that present in infancy or childhood? Yeah, well, leukemia, broadly speaking, there are two types of leukemia in childhood. There's acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL, or acute myeloid leukemia, AML. These two types of leukemia cover like vast majority of the leukemia you see in childhood, really. There are other rarer types of leukemia, uh, for example, Birkus leukemia, and there are some really, really rare types, but they're like quite niche, really. Right. So ALL and AML are the important ones to know about. And how yep. common are these two conditions? Well, alluding to what I mentioned earlier, I mean, cancer is not very common in childhood anyway. I mean, the latest data in UK suggests that every year that's probably around 1,800 new diagnosis of cancer. This is all cancer in childhood. So imagine that's already not very common, of which leukemia is the commonest subgroup of cancer in children. And that makes up almost like what, a third, 30, 40%. You're looking at roughly about 600 new cases of leukemia per year in UK, inf infants and children up to teenage age group. And that's subdivided into ALL. ALL is much more common. So of those 600 cases per year, about 500 of them are ALL and roughly about 100 of them are AML. Very rough. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And what are the risk factors for developing leukemia? Well, for most of those patients who de develop leukemia, they have no risk factors at all because unlike adult cancers, adult cancers obviously talk about like smokings and lifestyle and all that stuff. In childhood cancer, majority of patients, unfortunately, it just comes out of the blue. There are a very small number of patients that are associated with inherited or chromosomal abnormalities of Downs. It's the classic one that all pediatricians should know that patient with Down syndrome, they are at risk of leukemia. But having said that, of all the patients that develop leukemia, it's only for a small proportion of them are Downs patients, if that makes sense, because obviously most children out there are not Downs. So most of the children don't have any predisposition factors at all. I mean, there's a lot of research being done to look at all sorts of different things. So there are lots of suggestions that various things that could and probably do. Of course, leukemia, things such as radiation, et cetera. But again, no, they just 
a child off the street. They don't normally come into contact with radiation, not high enough doses anyway. So that's why the, the bottom line is majority of the patients that we see, there's no particular reason. It's just unfortunate bad luck. Right. Okay. Are there any particular age groups that are particularly at risk or where it's diagnosed more than other ages? Yeah. So well, you divide that into ALR and AMR, they're, they're two completely different diseases, really. So leukemia is not one diagnosis. So it's different for ALR and AML. ALL, as I mentioned to you, is the more common type of leukemia in childhood. And it is actually a childhood disease. It is, you know, they're, they're less adults that got the disease and most of them are childhood. And the peak age incidence of ALL is somewhere in the region of like two to four years, five, six years or thereabouts. So you have this peak around that age group and then it goes down as they age. And then there's a very small rise as, as, as they get into the teenage years. So in ALL, it is a younger children disease, if you wish. Although there are very small numbers of infants, so when I say infants, less than one with ALL. AML is actually an adult disease, AML. There are lots and lots of adults out there with AML, more than children. So if you look at the curve, there's a tiny, tiny little blip in the infancy in less than one. And then as the, the age graph slowly goes up, it, it, you know, as I say, in childhood and teenage, it just slowly go up. And then when you get into the elderly, it, it goes really high, really. So it's, it's an adult disease, AML. Right, okay. You said earlier that because it's not particularly common, it can be challenging for kind of more general paediatricians to diagnose or to think of it as a diagnosis. So I was hoping you could give me a summary of the common ways in which children with leukemia tend to present. Yeah, I mean, the, the, with patients with leukemia, when they present is all very non-specific, by and large, most of them very, very non-specific type of presentations. We quite often see them that they go to see various healthcare professionals, either GP or A&E or local pediatricians, multiple, multiple visits over a number of weeks, sometimes a few months with very general symptoms, for example, recurrent infections, tightness, pallor, and these are things it's, it's very nonspecific. So it's quite often is quite hard to pick up. And then eventually things may start declaring themselves because they may get more other associated symptoms other than these very non-specific symptoms, such as they may get starting bruises and petechiae, et cetera. Other very common presentation is aches and pains, bone pain, the limping child. So again, that's something that definitely when you see a limping child, again, in general pediatrics, that's the thing you see, you see it, children with all these symptoms very, very frequently, isn't it? And it's quite hard to tease up who's got cancer and who hasn't. And the limping child definitely is one that when you see, and I've done general peds for a long time, 30 years now. But I'm, I presume nowadays they still got the limping child type of workup where you should always do a full blood count and a blood film. Just make sure that there is no leukemia there because bone pain, aches and pain and limping child is definitely one of the presentations. And other presentation is in the T cell subtype of ALL, um, because again, ALL is, is subdivided into B cells and T cells. In the T cells subtype, they can get mediastinal mass because T being the T lymphocytes, which matures in the thymus, they can get a mediastinal mass. So that's another presentation that's often get missed is that children, if they've got a enlarging mediastinal mass, they just come up with recurrent cough and sometimes wheeziness. So initially people think that, oh, they, they have new onset of asthma. And that sometimes is the misdiagnosis. People do go down the route of, they start giving various inhalers and things are not improving. Again, I've not done genopies for so long, but I understand that British Thoracic Society don't advocate doing chest x-ray for new diagnosis asthma anymore. 
which I'm sure they've got all the evidence to back that up. But it's just to be aware that if a newly diagnosed asthmatic, if you think that things are not improving with the inhalers, then you do have to consider, is there something else going on? Then a chest x-ray may have to be done to look for whether it's mediastinal mass, because that's quite significant with mediastinal mass being present. And as I mentioned, the bleeding, bruising, that's quite often the thing that make people want to do blood count because people want to make sure that you know, there's no thrombocytopenia or coagulopathy. And because sometimes they can present with coagulopathy as well. So these are kind of like the most common type of presentation we see them. Sometimes they get pathological fractures. That can sometimes also happen. I mean, I've got patients on the ward at the moment that the child fell over while isolating and then thought to have a fracture when they see the orthopedic surgeons. And they look at the, the x-ray and wasn't sure whether there's fracture or not. And then the pain just continued. Eventually someone did a blood count. So you can see though, as I say, these are quite non-specific type of symptoms and they quite often can mimic lots of different things as well. Lots of different diagnoses, you no know, rheumatological thing. If you think about, you know, all these aches and pains, sometimes, you know, they can present as if they got arthritis. I mean, a, a very typical uh, red flag is if they get a migratory type of arthropathy. And they get pain in one joint and they get better and then go to another joint and that get better and go to another joint because not, I'm not a rheumatologist, but understanding that that doesn't usually happen in GIA for incidence. So I think it's about more understanding, awareness, and then if there's any concern, do a full blood count and a blood film. Always ask for a blood film because most of the time when patients present with leukemia, their, their blood count is abnormal most of the time, but occasionally the blood count can be relatively normal. And again, people need to understand that the hematology labs do not automatically do a blood film or proof of blood smear if the blood count and numbers numerically are fairly normal. It's up to the clinicians, you know, the doctors, to have that awareness that if you're thinking it could be leukemia, then you have to ask someone to look at the blood film to look for blasts. So I think, again, it's all this awareness and being aware that you know, blood tests are relatively simple to do. And asking for a blood film is relatively simple to do, but then you, know, you have to be aware and think about it and ask for it. Yeah. So because it's all quite general, it's just about having that kind of vigilance and awareness to kind of ask for these extra things that may eventually point you to a diagnosis, mm. I guess. Mm. You mentioned rheumatological conditions like JIA sometimes kind of mimicking or, or the fact that leukemia can sometimes mimic these rheumatological conditions. Are there any other important differential diagnoses to exclude that might present in a similar way? Is there any differential diagnosis to exclude? I mean, the thing about leukemia is most of the time, a blood count and blood film should give you indications. Now, are there situations where the blood count's normal and the peripheral blood smear is normal and the child still turn out to be leukemia? That, those does happen. Now, then all other confusing diagnoses for those ones are other than the rheumatological the classic one at the moment is lymph nodes. We get so many lymph node referrals. And again, your audience, they're pediatrician, isn't it? I'm sure you see lots of lymph nodes all the time. And majority of the time, if the patients have got lymphopathy with leukemia, number one, usually there are quite a lot of them. There's not just a you know, single one or two small lymph nodes, you no know, centimeter or so lymph node with a normal blood count. That's very unusual to be a leukemia, especially again, the other thing actually I've not mentioned so far, but I've just mentioned history so far, isn't it? An examination is also very important. You look for organomegaly, liver and spleen, because if there's a liver and spleen organomegaly palpable, then that does make one more, more concerned. Large lymph nodes, you no, know, as they're not talking about the shot, you know, one, one centimeter lymph nodes. Now, usually if they're large lymph nodes, if they're enlarging lymph nodes, especially that those are of concern. And the other thing I again alluded to earlier is pathologic fractures. Yeah. 
So you know, if there's any bone pain or anything bad you know, on imaging, there are fractures. Again, you have to think, is this pathological fracture? Then it's always worth, again, doing a blood count, blood film, and if, if in doubt, you know, have a chat with contact, you know, hematologists, and then kind of a discussion, see what our thoughts are. Right, okay, sure. Moving on now to think a bit more about investigations. You mentioned that a blood count would almost always be abnormal and the importance of a blood film in showing blasts. Can you just summarise what investigations are required to confirm the diagnosis of leukaemia and then how investigations can be used to help with further classification? Mm, of course. Yeah, so obviously you always start with simple tests first, and then when you've done your history and examination, and uh, as I mentioned, other than doing a blood count blood film is to do the chest x-ray, as I mentioned, to make sure there's no mucosinal mass and a coagulation, make sure there's no coagulopathy. Because that, if there's a co coagulopathy, quite often that would be much more suggestive of AML, but that's suggestive, obviously, not diagnostic of blood count blood film. And then quite often, if patients are referred to us at Grillman Street, we quite often would ask for not just a blood film to be sent to us to be looked at, quite often we ask for five mils of blood in EDTA to be sent along as well. And what that is for is to do what's called immunophenotyping or flow cytometry. So because looking at blood film basically is you spread that on a glass slide, you stain it and look at under microscope with your eyes, which is helpful. But now with modern day technology, quite often we want to rely on much more sophisticated techniques by immunophenotyping. And basically what that happens is we put that five mils of EDTA in, into the immunophenotype lab and they look at all the proteins on the surface of the cells. And for your audience who in the basic medical science, they may or may not remember all those CD numbers because you look at all those different CD numbers and they're basically name, they're names of the proteins and depends on the pattern of those proteins that express on the cells, then you can say where in the hemopathic pathway those cells are. And if there are a lot of them, that looks like it's very early, especially with a leukemic type of immunophenotype, that then you know that it's, again, depends how many cells there are. If there are enough cells, almost always that's enough to clinch diagnosis. Now, I hesitate that there. The reason is the gold standard is you should not really diagnose leukemia based on the blood alone. The gold standard of diagnosing leukemia is actually to look at all the cells in the bone marrow. So it's to do a bone marrow aspiration, which most non-tertiary centers, general pediatric units are not able to do a bone marrow aspiration. Now, there are a few that who can, but majority can't do it. So once the blood count and blood film had been looked at, and if there is a strong suspicion of leukemia, especially if the profile of blood flow is abnormal and indicative of leukemia, then the child should be referred to a pediatric tertiary center to have the bone marrow test done. And then because when we do the bone marrow test, other than just making the diagnosis, we do further advanced diagnostics. Because when we do the bone marrow aspiration, obviously we look at the morphology, as I mentioned, look at the microscope. We run the immunophenotyping from the Bing marrow, again, just more of a confirmatory test. As I said, that is the gold standard. And with modern leukemia investigation, that's not enough. We need to look at the genetics. So we need to look at the cytogenetics of the leukemia. So we look at fish. Some units still doing karyotyping. We'll be looking at advanced molecular genetics as well, because all those are helpful in the making diagnosis. And the other thing that's very helpful is risk stratification. It tells us what's the likelihood of relapse. It just further subgroups the patients into those groups. And, and that's true for both AML and ALL, by the way. And once we know in, in what sort of subgroup they are, then we can, based on the risk allocation, then we can work out how intense the treatment is needed. And I say that that's true for both ALL and AML. Now, obviously, they, that was subdivided into ALL and ML first, and then we can look at the further risk stratification there onwards. 
Right. Okay. But it's important to have an exact diagnosis because that will determine the exact treatment algorithms that you use. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, as I said, the, the first thing is to confirm is AL or AML because they're two, com two completely different diseases. Although they are both treated with chemotherapy, but the treatment protocol is very much different for the two diseases, AL and AML, as I say. And even within the two disease window, the treatment algorithm, as you say, is different as well. It depends on the genetic findings we find. And is it important to do a lumbar puncture to look for CNS spread? Does that happen at this stage or is that only for certain types of leukemias? No, that's correct. For all leukemia, we do do a lumbar puncture. Ideally, we do it at the same time as the diagnostic bone marrow, especially when the peripheral blood confirms the diagnosis. Now, in some situations, either the peripheral blood is not confirmative, then we want to do the bone marrow to confirm the diagnosis first, or for logistical reasons, sometimes then we may not do it at the same time. But basically, we would try to aim to do a lumbar puncture at the same time, like say, to see whether there's CNS involvement of leukemia. And then we give intrathecal chemotherapy, usually at the same time as well. This is true even if we don't see any leukemia in the CSF, because we know that if we don't give intrathecal chemotherapy, the, the chance of relapse in the CNS is much higher. So again, depends on the protocol, the, the numbers of intrathecal chemo given is different, depending on the disease and which protocol we're using. Right. Okay. Moving on now to think a bit more about management, and clearly it's quite complex and the algorithms and protocols vary according to you know, the subtypes of disease, which is probably far beyond the scope of this podcast. But could you give an overview of how leukemia is managed and what are the aims of treatment? Sure. Now, as I said, the first thing is to, to, to distinguish is it ALL or AML. So very briefly, they're both chemotherapy by and large. ALL almost always will be chemotherapy only. I mean, the cure rate for ALL is approximately 90% chance of cure. Nobody wants cancer or leukemia, but actually ALL has got extremely good cure rate. And even the, our other colleagues you know, look into what we do so that they can get elements of what we do so that to improve prognosis in the adults for ALL. And the chemotherapy treatment is mostly outpatient-based. Once we make the diagnosis, we start the protocol. And it's approximately two years and one, two, three months or thereabouts, just over two years, outpatient-based chemotherapy. In different units around the country, there's always a tertiary center, but that's slightly different how it's done around the country. So for example, in London, we have a tertiary center like ours, and then we have local units that will do some of the treatment and especially things like febrile neutropenia. And that's probably where your audience mostly will see them actually, if, you know, if they work in general pediatric units, they'll be seeing children going in for febrile neutropenia and management of some of the side effects, et cetera. I mean, chemotherapy is how I explain to parents is a bit like a recipe, you know, a cooking recipe, really, because you've got all the different ingredients or drugs that you can choose, and then you have you know, all the different dosages, and then you give them at a certain time point. It's all written down, and you just follow the recipe or protocol. And as I say, the, the, what we do is even before we have all the information about the genetics, et cetera, as soon as we make the diagnosis, we start treatment already. And then what we do is we do disease assessment, bone marrows, two weeks into treatment and then one month after treatment and do further testing, what we call minimal residual disease or MRD. And that basically assess speed of response. And, and those are the two key things I explain to parents is that those two are the key things to number one, assist in, in working out prognosis for the children and risk stratify them into what treatment they get after the first month of induction treatment. 
again, a lot of people, a lot of parents ask about things like staging. In leukemia, leukemia goes everywhere in the body, it's in the blood. So that staging is not relevant, whereas the genetics and the MRD response is much more important. So as I said, we start treatment in the first month, do other assessment, and then based on that restratification, then we know which arm to go on to and just carry that for the two years and a few months. And majority of children will be cured by chemotherapy alone. And the chemotherapy, as I say, there are a number of different drugs. We can give them by mouth, intravenously, so they all get central line because they need a lot of intravenous treatment as well, at least minimum weekly blood tests so that we can monitor what's happening with their bloods. They can get drugs in, intramuscularly, intrathecally, et cetera, which is for the protocol, really. So that's ALL, very brief, without going into any sort of details. AML is also chemotherapy. Depends. Because with AML, the prognosis is worse for AML. As I say, ALL is, you're talking about around 90% for most patients. For AML, without knowing any other further information, you're looking at more like 65 to 70% chance of cure. And we, again, the workup is pretty much the same. Do the bing marrow and lumbar puncture and trithecal, put a central line in and start chemotherapy. Different protocol, but it's still chemotherapy. And then we usually keep them in hospital, actually, because for AML, the chemotherapy protocol is much more intense and they get much more likely to get things like neutropenic sepsis, mucositis, et cetera. So usually in the first month, we keep an inpatient until they can recover because when they get very sick, they could need things like intravenous analgesia and parental nutrition, et cetera. And then on recovery after a month, again, we do the bing marrow test. It's a little bit similar to ALL, but depending on the genetic changes we find and the response, then we decide whether they carry on with chemo only or they may need bone marrow transplant because there's a higher chance, as, as you can imagine, because the prognosis is worse for AML, there's a higher chance that AML may need bone marrow transplantation. If they are in the genetics, in the favorable or the standard risk group, and if they respond well, then they will complete four courses of chemotherapy altogether, four courses of mostly inpatient, some could be a little bit outpatient, and that will run over between five to six months if they're chemotherapy only. If they got poor cytogenetics and or if they're responding poorly and not going to remission, then you, we usually give a intensified second course of chemotherapy followed by bone marrow transplantation as the third course of chemotherapy. So in, in a very brief nutshell, that's how, how we treat AL and AML. Right. Okay. That makes complete sense, actually. How long does a child have to be in remission for until you can say that they're cured? <laughs> that's a very good question. Um. We try to avoid, I mean, although obviously when, when we speak to parents, we say, you know, what the intention is to cure. Okay. That is the intention, especially as the AL got such good prognosis, but even AML is, is not bad prognosis comparing to, you know, some of the adult cancers for both of them is the intention to cure. Now, when can you say they are cured? That is the bit that you can never say when they are cured, if that makes sense. So for majority of patients with leukemia, they were going to remission after one month of treatment. And again, well, without making it too complicated, again, with modern technologies, because remission is how you define it. Historically, if you're going back 30 years ago, the definition of remission is by morphology. So looking at the microscope, if they're less than 5% plus under microscope, we call that remission. But again, as I say, because nowadays we've got so, so many different technologies to, to look at leukemia now. If one is very pedantic, you have to talk about, is it, are we talking about Morphological remission, or we're talking about genetic remission, or we're talking about MRD remission. So most of the children, they definitely go into morphological remission, and vast majority of them still go into genetic and molecular MRD remission after one month, if not by about two, three months. 
Now, once into remission, then we finish the treatment. Okay. And now, can children relapse on treatment? They can. It's very, very uncommon, but they can. So most children will finish a treatment if it's allowed two years treatment, AML, you know, five, six months treatment. And then we just follow them up in clinic by clinical reviews. And the chance of relapse is highest in the first year or so after finishing treatment. And then with time, it's an exponential curve. With time, that drops year on year on year. And the curve would never, ever reach zero. And that's why I say to my parents or my patient, the curve never reached zero, but you know, by, by the time you're about three, four or five years out, the chance of relapse is almost zero, but it, as I say, it never reaches zero. So as you can see, because it's an exponential curve, you can never say that they are 100% cure. You can never say that. All yeah. you can say is the chance of relapse is tiny. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So it's really, really unlikely, mm. but you can unfortunately just never say never. Yep, exactly. Medicine, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned about the complications of leukemia and or well, it's treatment. So febrile neutropenia and that probably being how most general pediatricians may come into contact with these children. What are the kind of complications that general pediatricians might see? And what do you think it's most important for general pediatricians to be aware of when managing children with leukemia? Yeah, I mean, definitely for general pediatricians, it is the febrile neutropenia is the commonest thing that they come into contact with. And it is defined as a medical emergency because febrile neutropenia is basically septicemia, right? And again, any general pediatrician with assault would know that sepsis and you've got sepsis six. Children can, or patients, any patient can die from sepsis very quickly, very rapidly. And who's at the highest risk when, when you have neutropenia and you've got neutropenia and you're immunosuppressed? So they are at much higher risk than in other immunocompetent patients, right? So it is medical emergency. But having said that, we, we are trying to be extra cautious because the last thing we want is that you know, we, we do all this and we, the child's in remission and theoretically they are cured from the leukemia, but they die from a treatable cause, which is sepsis, right? So, so that's the last thing we want. So that's why we're always super cautious. And that's why we've got all these protocols. The febrile neutropenia protocols, you've got three definition, well, you've got three aspects of the definition of febrile neutropenia. And one of which is the febrile bit, the temperature. So 38 or above, that's febrile. Neutropenia, neutrophil 0.5 or below. Now, most people remember the numerical definition, febrile neutropenia, because that's the easy bit to remember. But in my mind, actually, the most important is not those two. In my mind, the most important thing to remember about febrile neutropenia is actually how well unwell the child is because the child can be septic without fevers. And some people forget that, unfortunately. I'll give you an example. Several years ago, I had a patient who presented to the local hospital. The parents said, no, the child's a little bit unwell, not, not too unwell, you know, just not the usual self. And the plate account's very low, single digit, whatever the number was. And the hospital just gave the plate transfusion because it's low. And then for whatever reason, they checked the blood count again next day, which is not the routine practice, but they did it. And the, the plate is like single digit again, and they gave plate transfusion and they brought kid back the next day, third day consecutively and plate is still low. So basically you've got a very plate refractory patient. Then you have to ask why, 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 why is the child very plate refractory? Because that you don't normally need daily plate transfusions. And, and, but by the time they rung me, uh, and I said, I think you need to start antibiotics on this child, take blood cushion and start antibiotics. But actually that same day, the child went to ICU and eventually the child died from sepsis. And that's what was happening. The child was brewing sepsis and that's why the patient had pleated refractoriness. And the child only started temperature when the child was on ICU. So that's something that 
one has to be quite cautious of is that febrile neutropenia can kill children. And, and uh, for, for majority of protocol, you're looking at about in the region, about 2%, 2%, 3% chance of patient dying from sepsis for most protocols. And you, that's why you're trying to avoid that. And again, I think the audience need to be aware of febrile neutropenia and be cautious and start antibiotics straight away. They always stick by cautious, obviously. Right. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds like a bit of a kind of common theme with general pediatricians managing leukemia that actually it's just important to be vigilant for the child that's not responding to treatment in the way that you think they should, whether that be, you know, a diagnosis where you think it's asthma and they're not responding to their inhalers, have a kind of vigilance in the back of your mind that could, could this be something else? And the same is true for these other complications that if they're not responding to treatment in the way you would expect, then you should always have that kind of vigilance that something else might be going on. Yes, no, definitely. Yep. Great. Thank you. That was a really, really useful summary of leukemias. Just to finish, some standard quick fire questions. I suppose the first question that we usually ask is about kind of classic exam questions. If you were an examiner, what aspects of leukemia in the child do you think it would be important to be aware of for the exam? What is most likely to be asked? Yeah, I mean, I guess if I were to ask, I mean, again, I, I, don't, I don't expect you know, a, a general pediatrician to know all the details about the genetics or the, uh, or the treatment protocol. That changes very frequently anyway. What I would expect is how to recognize a child that could be a curve of leukemia. It's just going back to you know, the very basic you know, history and examination. What could, what should they be looking out for? What basic tests? Now I'm not asking big marrow aspiration tests. Like just you know, make sure they're doing the full blood count, coagulation, chest x-ray, et cetera. And just the initial workup, really. We've not talked about things like tumor lysis syndrome, but again, for most patients, the tumor lysis syndrome is not so much an issue with general pediatrics, unless, unless the white cell count is very high. If the white cell count is very high, then tumorizer syndrome could be a problem. Again, just recognize emergencies, really. So recognizing, for example, high count leukemia, again, is an emergency because that need to be referred to a tertiary center straight away. Mediastinal mass, because that is affecting the airway, because children can lose the airway because the mediastinal mass can press on the airway and I've certainly had children die in the ambulance because they, they lose the airway in the ambulance and recognize things like febrile neutropenia. So it's recognizing these emergencies and red flags about children recurring presentation to medical professionals. Actually, you need to do some blood tests. Right. Okay. Yeah, I can see those being important. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend to listeners who might want to find out more about leukemia? Mm. I mean, leukemia, that there's a lot of research being done because it, it is cancer and is the commonest cancer in childhood. So there is a lot of research and that there's no books out there that will keep up to it, really. You have to re read the, you know, the latest journals and et cetera, et cetera. One of my colleagues here, Professor Ajay Bora, has published a book, I think about five years ago, I think it's just called Childhood Equivalent for Plastic Leukemia by Ajay Vora. So, so that's by, it's published by Springer. So, so that's a very good book. Or even just look at the National Cancer Institute from the States. They've got a section on leukemia as well. As I say, just read a section on the more general type of thing. If you're going to do the more advanced diagnostic and the treatment, that, that changes. And also different countries is different as well. Yeah. So I think those are you know, quite useful. I mean, there, there are loads of stuff out there. Yeah, sure. Finally, what are your three takeaway learning points from the podcast today? Number one, I think leukemia is a disease that's uncommon and is quite 
tricky to recognize if you're not familiar with it. So I hope you're learning a bit more about it. They would think about it if they see any patients that could have leukemia and just you know, do the appropriate tests and make the referrals. So I think that's number one. And number two, despite that, uh, despite that it is a cancer, it's actually a very curative disease. At least ALL, which is a more common one, but even AML, it is curative, which is, again, is a quite big misconception for people out there because people think cancer must be bad. And not always, it's, it's actually very satisfying because you, know, you used to get these six patients that come in and the and the parents' office are very understandably very distraught. And then you start treating them. You build a relationship with the child and the family, and then eventually they get cured. So it's a very satisfying job. And the last thing I think is just, again, recognizing the, the emergencies that I mentioned, really, things like fibronitropenia is one of the key ones, you know, high counts and redesigner mass, et cetera. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And thank you for, for talking to me today. No problem. Pleasure. Well, good luck to you, listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRC-PCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.